Welcome to the Uninformed Handball Hour. We're back after an incredibly long two-week break. What? But <laughs> despite the end of the World Championship, there's been plenty of handball going on. We've already had two weeks full of the Champions League. Domestic leagues are back on. And so we have plenty to talk about. Before we go into the on-court stuff, we're going to give you a bit of a teaser for our interview later in the podcast when we have Julian Rooks and Oliver Brozig, two handball statisticians coming on, and they have a special place in Alex's heart, particularly after the World Championship. Well, what can I say? I'm really excited. Julian and Oliver have done a great job with the Handballytics website. And I think you would have seen that in our Twitter and our Instagram, we used the player score metric quite a lot which oliver developed and we've referenced the offensive rating and defensive rating that julian has developed i've always been interested in stats and i've always thought it was a huge gap in handball because we've seen the transformative nature of statistics in other sports like nba and even now soccer football is really embracing the data side of sports and teams just can improve so easily and I always felt that handball has an opportunity to basically get there early because what usually happens is that you know the the NBA teams or football teams are talking about you know they have so much money that they just look into everything but I think if you weigh up the value of data it can really, you can achieve so much with so little. And, you know, really money ball in handball, I've talked about it before, but I think it's so possible to really delve into what makes a player actually good using data. Unfortunately, the data hasn't been available to date, but hopefully it's already getting better. We're seeing better stats, we're seeing better tracking. And we'll talk to Julian and Oliver about how they've used the data that's already available to really pioneer um, statistics and humble. So I'm excited. But before we go into that interview, let's talk a bit about some of the biggest news from the last couple of weeks. And the biggest news just came out this morning, just before we were going to release the podcast. Mikkel Hansen and Alborg have sent shockwaves around the handball world as it hasn't been announced yet, but some reputable sources, including Danish TV2 and BT in Denmark, have said that Mikkel Hansen is moving to the Danish champions Alborg in 2022 after 10 years at PSG. Mikkel Hansen and Mazmesa Larsen, of course. It's a double whammy. A uh, double whammy. <laughs> Uh, which is it's just really exciting I think all of us wondered where Hansen was going or what he's going to do at the end of his contract with PSG so it is from the summer of 2022 so it'll be the the 2022-2023 season so Mm. this season and next season 
Hansen will still play in PSG. And it's only after that that he will join Albor. Um, so it is still quite a bit in the distance, really. Um, but it is a real vote of confidence and a power move from Albor, who are really, you know, they have said that by doing this, we want to be a top club in Europe. And Denmark really needs a top club in Europe. Alborg have been inching closer to that, but they've really made a statement by, yeah, just going out guns blazing and bringing in the best player in Denmark's history. And I think it's also a reaction to the publicity that handball got over the last couple of years with Denmark winning the world championships and the last two um, competitions they have won. And the, basically the support that handball has received in Denmark, really millions of people tuned in to watch the games. It was probably the biggest event. The final was the biggest event in Danish TV apart from the Queen's speech on uh, New Year's. And I think that has given a lot of the, let's say, financial sponsors of the clubs in the league confidence that handball as a sport, in Denmark at least, can expand. And when you look at um, Allborg's financial situation, they're, they're a very well-run club. Um, they In 2019, they had a turnover of... 25 million Danish kroner, which is something like three and a half million euro. Uh, that's probably bumped up a little bit over the last couple of years with the good participation in the Champions League. But they are committing, they've said that they will increase, they kind of need to increase the budget to accommodate Hansen and Masmanson um, Larsen. They need to basically increase the budget by 1 million euro. Uh, so it's 7 million Danish kroner which is a considerable increase. This is, you know, this is a real step, step change for the club. But they're, they've also said that basically they think the overall sponsorship and overall attention that this huge signing will bring will more than compensate that step change in the budget. So yeah, it's it's, it's great to see. Now, 100%. Alborg have been kind of knocking on the door the last couple of years they've been punching above their weight a little bit they've, but they've definitely talked the talk and you know particularly the likes of Henrik Mulgaard who has said you know we can beat any team on a given day in the Champions League and we want to be in the final four and now they're really making a huge step towards that a real signal of intent with both key backcourt players in the Danish national team you know say what you like about Mads Mensa, and we have in this podcast over the years but uh, he is still a key player for them and another huge name for them as well. And as you said, it's kind of riding the wave of Danish support in the country. And you feel like it is a step towards them becoming Denmark's team. They already have four players who were part of that Danish World Championship squad. A couple of them will probably be left in 2022. They'll bring a couple of more in. They've got some very exciting young players. And you imagine that in Champions League games that they'll go to bigger arenas, maybe somewhere somewhere else that's central in the country for people to gather around, have a few games at the Yiska Bank Boxing, for example, not just in Aalborg as they try to capture everyone's attention. And, you know, Mikkel Hansen there will draw people in from all around Denmark. Yeah, and, and it's great to see this 
I've kind of talked about this previously where Denmark really needs a team. They need an AG Copenhagen again. Mm. And AG Copenhagen were a huge um, commercial success. You know, during their time in the Danish league, they had packed arenas and they had, uh, you know, uh, I keep seeing this video that keeps popping up. And when they played the Danish Cup Final Four in the main football stadium in Copenhagen, in Parken, and you had 50,000 fans watching a handball game, which looked, it looked a bit ridiculous because you could not see anything on this <laughs> tiny court in the middle of a football pitch. But that, that potential is there. The issue is that AG Copenhagen went about it very uh, flippantly or very, yeah, they really splashed the cash and maybe thought that the potential was way bigger than what it actually was. What Allberg are doing is they've organically grown into Denmark's best team over a number of years. And they're bringing in a couple of stars, but it's not that huge of an increase. So Mikkel Hansen is the highest paid player in the world. So his salary is €80,000 per month in PSG, which with bonuses adds up to €1.5 euro per year for PSG. So he really blows every other humble uh, star out of the water in terms of salary. But again, Allberg are quite smart. The, one of the reasons why they're doing it in 2022, I think, and TV2 reported, is this um, lower tax rate that they can get for basically a law that aims to bring back high-skilled workers from other countries if they have been in a different country for 10 years. So Mikkel Hansen will be in a different country for 10 years. And if you bring that high-skilled worker, in this in this case as an athlete, back into the country, you pay a reduced tax rate. So instead of the usual, let's say, 50-55% income tax rate with, with everything added on top, that can be as low as 30%. And that's for both player and club, the tax that they have to pay. Exactly. Mm. So it's the government that's basically helping out Allborg in this case. And I think it it will probably also, I'm not sure about Masmans Larsen, but it is a big difference for Hansen because right now in Paris, he's paying really high taxes. And that's, you know, Mm -hmm. everyone knows that the tax rate for the highest level earners in Paris is really high. It's, It's up at 60%. And the salary that he's losing from going from Paris to Alborg, he's getting part of it back through this tax incentive. So that that was definitely a very smart financial decision by Alborg, and I'd say one of the reasons why they persuaded Hansen to come back. So it's not just the pure like love for Danish handball that Mikkel's <laughs> gone back to Denmark. <laughs> and it is super smart, though. Uh, just one quick question before we move on. He's 33 now, and he has shown this past month that he's still got it very much so, MVP of the World Championship. He'll be pushing on 35 when he moves. He'll be 34, turning 35 in October, the year that he moves in 2022. Do you still think he can do it for three more years with them? I think he can do what Lazarov's been doing. I, I said it was it in the last podcast or one before that he moves with the pace of a snail, but his mind is a rocket. So, <laughs> with that style, that style of play, 
I can see him playing into his 40s if he cares enough. That That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Because uh, at times, I think Hansen's passion for the mm-hmm. sport has waned. Uh, it's gone up and down. But I think it's those performances with Denmark that really brought him a new life. So 2019 World Championship, he had an incredible tournament. And I think it was basically a change in his attitude towards handball. It came from that tournament. And again, this year with the World Championship, he won it. And, you know, he's this god in Denmark. And I think that's why he also thought, well, the happiest times in my career over the last couple of years have been in Denmark or in a Danish jersey. Why don't I go back and replicate this? And I think I, I see Hansen playing until he's 40 at the highest level. I, I can I can see it. If he wants to, he can do it. There you go. So it's not actually confirmed yet, just <laughs> reports, <laughs> but uh, some pretty reputable sources. And I'm sure it'll be confirmed in the next few days. Uh, so yeah, exciting times with Mikkel Hansen going back to Denmark. Uh, elsewhere, there was other big news on Wednesday last week as the EHF announced that in the men's and women's EHF Champions Leagues that all 16 teams will be moving forward to the playoff rounds. So what we originally were going to have was the top two teams in each group go straight to the quarterfinals, bottom two teams in each group get knocked out of the competition, and then the four teams in between in each group play off. Now, all 16 teams going through, which means no direct route to the quarterfinal, no teams get knocked out. Uh, Mostly this is because of so many games needing to be rescheduled. Is this the fairest route to go? Uh, And what's your personal opinion on it? I think it has to be the, the fairest way to do things because we know that clubs... I mean, probably a club like Zeged comes to mind that were absolutely torn apart by the virus early in the season. And even when players came back, it took them a long, long time to get back into the swing of things again. And it'd be be very tough to punish teams that might have had a chance to do a lot better or or to be higher up the table because they got the virus. So I think ultimately it has, I think this is, Maybe the teams who were finishing top in the group might be a little bit peeved off, but I think this is probably the safest or the, the fairest way to do things, given the knock-on effects that COVID can have on the club or the squad in general, um, and the nightmare it can cause for whatever. And it, yeah, so I just think it's probably the best way to go. Alex, I like it. I I've always clamoured for more knockout handball. You want to see teams fighting. And so a couple of extra knockout games is going to be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, maybe it's a bit of a waste of time. All this effort that they've put into the group stage with so many games. But still, the ranking is important. I don't think, you know, all of those games are important because, you know, everyone wants to avoid Barcelona in the last 16 and in the quarterfinals. Maybe you'll you'll take them in the semi-final. That's when you want to meet Barca, but uh, <laughs> you want to avoid them until then. <laughs> yeah. So, but my question is, um, how are they doing the final ranking? So, obviously, teams are going to have more games and less games. Are they doing a points per game or something? So, what's going to happen? And it was already done last week in the women's competition that the games were awarded to one team or the other. So, games that could not be rescheduled, it was a 
victory for one team and the other team, a 10-0 victory as in a walkover. And I don't know the exact reasoning behind each of them, uh, but I believe it is basically which countries or which team's government is to blame for it. You know? <laughs> and that's why, uh, particularly in the case of Vipers Christiansand, that in all but one of the games, they had a lot of games to try and catch up with. And so they went on a, a little European tour last week because teams couldn't go to Norway. So they ended up basing themselves in Hungary and playing a bunch of games, still couldn't complete their 14 matches. And there were some games that had to be awarded. And, and the games against the Russian team, uh, Rostov, uh, in, in one case, and uh, there were a couple of other games which they lost. So... Uh, they were kind of on the the wrong side of that. But yeah, it was basically which team was quote-unquote to blame for the postponement. Yeah, I think that's the unfair side of things. Mm. Um, Because for Vipers, they basically ended up in fifth position in the group, which, you know, they're better than that. They were better than at least two teams ahead of them. And I, I think it probably would have been fairer to do the points per game metric that I think was used in the French Football League last season when they ended the league early, where they basically said, you know, how many games have you played? How many points do you achieve across those games? And extrapolate that out. And that would probably be a more accurate ranking. I think that was used in the in the Bundesliga handball as well, right? Yeah, Bundesliga yeah, handball yeah, as well. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's probably the the fairest way to go about it. Is there any teams on, let's start with the men's side, who look like they will um, suffer from it or any teams that can gain from it? Uh, PSG, I think, could gain from it. And the reason for that is because they've got a lot of games to catch up with. They've only played seven rounds of the competition. Uh, so highly unlikely they're going to finish their 14 games on court. Uh, and, you know, the way they're playing this season, uh, there could be a few games they would be expected to win that they might not get the two points in. But if it goes to uh, purely on paper, they might get some sneaky 10-0 victories. So <laughs> it could be good for PSG after all. And I think they'd be much happier not having to play seven matches over the next three weeks as they try and uh clamber their way up to definitely third place maybe second place in group a so basically it comes down to psg's a game that psg didn't play against whoever if it was um, what's an example of, of a game that psg didn't play earlier in the season let me find one psg versus varda for example so it depends whose fault that is and the point will go to the the other team then is that correct as far as i'm aware this is what i'm guessing they didn't give the specific reasoning behind each and every game it wasn't made public, um, but I assume that they're looking at the uh, the situation. And basically, I guess in PSG's case, if the French government were the ones to decide that, no, a team from outside of the European Union, i.e. a team from Skopje, cannot come in, then maybe Vardar get the points. We will see. Still a bit unknown. Even though it's, it's Vardar who may have had the COVID outbreak that caused the game to be cancelled. That's another issue, yeah. I mean, uh, if it's purely down to the politics, maybe that's that's one decision. If a bunch of uh, if a team had to postpone the game because they had seven, eight players with COVID, which was the case with a couple of teams, then perhaps they are the team to again 
it sounds harsh to say that to blame, but uh, they're the team to forfeit, I guess, yeah. in that case. That seems a bit fairer to me. But yeah, overall, really hard. It's a hard situation. I think I did say early on this season that it was probably going to happen, that you just had to try and play as many games as possible. And then at the end, see which teams were to blame and award points that way. So uh, that's the way they've gone. So I can't really uh, go against myself now and say that it's not fair. <laughs> Let's see. I think Kiel are probably another team. If we go by that second metric, if games cancelled because of COVID cases within a team, Kiel have had an unlucky schedule in a way because they played their four games against Barca and Veshprem, the tough ones, uh, in the middle of the season. But around that, they had a couple of games cancelled against, let's say, teams that they may have felt that well, they should beat, but they might lose those points. And right now, Kiel are sitting in fifth in Group B and with a few kind of unfavorable decisions for them, they could match up against a big team in that last 16. You know, the likes of Pigsegat, the likes of PSG could be waiting for them uh, on the other side, which it's great for us because we'll get some absolutely fantastic handball and we won't have to focus on Barcelona beating Vardar by 15 goals in each leg. Yeah, it's going to be winners and losers. Barca, I don't think they'll be bothered having to play two more Champions League games. They they don't have enough competition as it is in Spain, despite having to play a lot of games. Um, maybe a couple more somewhat tougher games will be fine and yeah they're going to f- end up winning the group they're going to play probably Vardar or Elverum in the last 16 so uh, that's a that's a walk in the park for them and Motor Zaporozhye will be through to the next round of the Champions League as you predicted Brian ah <laughs> oh, my, my predictions at the start of the season are really coming coming through now Do you know Motor Zaporozhye to have a great season also two seasons ago may I add and then uh, my uh, breakout star of the season, yeah, yeah, Omar, cleaning up. So I, am. <laughs> I, I love the fact that Motor are in third place in Group B with a goal difference of minus eighteen. <laughs> it's wonderful to see. Uh, and long may it continue. Now, it was probably one matchup in the Champions League, which was uh, kind of outstanding over the last couple of weeks. Some very interesting games, but one kind of highlight game was Barca against uh, Vesprem. Well, they played twice, right? Mm-hmm. Played back-to-back. So one one highlight encounter was the, the back-to-back Barca against Vesprem. Uh, I had a bit more focus on the, the second game in which Barca, well, they've put their Cologne woes behind them and they're back to their machine best in the group phase. Yeah, Vesprem looked very off in both games, even though the first game was fairly close. I, I think it was 37-34 to Barca. Barcelona controlled both games. They never really gave Veshprem a sniff. And we saw the yeah, the thawing of Nikolai Markusen coming in and uh out from the cold coming in and banging in goals for Veshprem, but but that wasn't enough. Before that first Veshprem game, I remember it was David Davies was saying in an interview that February is always a very, very hard month for uh clubs with them coming back from international duty half your players are wrecked tired the rest of them aren't up aren't in the rhythm at all because i've been playing much and uh it it did really look like that for vesprim funny enough didn't look like that for barcelona for somehow they seem to <laughs> bounce back from that stuff always a lot, lot quicker uh but yeah 
I think the mentality of Barcelona is something that always really stands out to me. How they can just seem to just they're I'm not it that sounds really bad to say it, they're that they're morally professional. Every club is very professional, but they are kind of in a lot of ways when it comes to putting things behind you and just and uh mo- moving on from losses, I think they're 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 fairly good. Now when it comes to winning trophies and uh push comes to shove in the final four, that's a different story. But they're the kings of the domestic season, the normal domestic season, yeah. But uh they looked they looked they looked great, yeah. And Vesprem just looked especially in that first game, completely out of sorts. They made a game of it in the end in the second half, but they looked absolutely dreadful in the first half. It's interesting what you said there about Barca. It just reminded me of uh, 2015 when they last won the title. And it was the first game after the World Championship, which was in Qatar. And Tom O'Brannigan was, he was harking on about it for basically the entire second half of the season, about how good they looked in that first game after the World Championship. Because it looked like they'd, they'd switched on all of a sudden. Second half of the season, they were ready to go. And, and maybe that says something about the way that Barca as a team look at their season because they traditionally take it very slow at the beginning. They start the season and preseason later than everyone else. Uh, of course, there was the, the caveat of the final four at Christmas time, but maybe that really didn't change their approach overall. And, and maybe, I, maybe this is finally their year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're gonna lose once they're not gonna lose a second time <laughs> oh yeah exactly uh you know i'm finding it hard to um to keep believing uh you know it's it's barca and norway on the men's side they just keep like flattering to deceive so i'm not going to make any big predictions about the team but maybe they are setting up for the second half of the season maybe not it, it just reminded me of uh 2015 and uh, how well they played right at the beginning of that second half of the season and, and kind of set out their stall there. It's also nice, uh, on a separate note, seeing Zeget back to what they should be, what we've been waiting for them to be all season. They came out, got two very good wins, uh, 35-31 against Porto and uh, 28-26 against Vardar. So two games that you would expect them to win, um, but they finally did it. Uh, and it's just good to see that, you know, they're a bit of a dark horse now, a team that has been mm. completely in the shadows all season. I think most of us even thought that they might not get through to the knockout stages due to the troubles that they were having. So they've been given this lifeline and they look to be capitalizing on it right now. They could even finish uh, in the top half of Group A, just three points behind Meshkov Brest with uh, three games in hand. I guess the big question for them, for Seged, is uh, if the games that they have yet to play will be ruled against them because of their COVID problems, whether they'll lose the points there. So, uh, nevertheless, though, yeah, definitely a dangerous team. If they finish in the bottom half of that that group, they're going to be a tricky team for perhaps Kiel or uh, or Alborg who come through. Just about uh, Barcelona there. I don't know if you heard during the week the news about uh, Johannes Bitter. He was in talks with, geez, I sound like Dublin there, Johannes Bitter. Johannes Bitter, he's a great goalie, fuck, you know. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> Johannes Bitter was in talks with Barcelona to be the replacement for Kevin Muller for next season. But he signed a five-year contract with his old club, uh, Hamburg. So he's 38 five-year contract you can do the math there he'd be 43 when the contract finishes i think probably the tom brady the the, 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 the thinking there probably that he will turn into more of a maybe i don't know play until he's 
41, I don't know, 40. And then he maybe turns into more, becomes a, a background staff or maybe, I don't know, player manager or whatever else. Um, but obviously turning down a lot of money not to go to Barcelona and the chance of maybe winning a, a Champions League to go to a team which might be promoted to the Bundesliga. Nothing set in stone. Obviously, his memories of winning the Champions League with Hamburg are deeply ingrained in him. That's an interesting one. It's an interesting question about that Barcelona goalkeeper position because there is one spot open alongside Gonzalo Perez de Vargas. A lot of people thought it would be Torbjörn Bergerud, but he's gone to Gheorghi next season, which is a very interesting signing for Gheorghi. Uh, they've also signed Yeri Tolbring, the Swedish left wing. So it looks like they're trying to bolster this squad a little bit and, and not just rely on bringing up young players. So interesting thing there about uh, Kyogi. We'll see what they can do. You mentioned there about the uh, about Johannes Bitter as well, uh, You know, maybe playing at 41 or going all the way to 43 and pulling a Tom Brady. But 40-year-old Kirill Lazarov this weekend was announced as the player coach for North Macedonia. We're going to have a player coach, perhaps, in international handball. How cool is that? So so it's, it was announced as player coach, not just coach. Player coach. Yeah, he hasn't announced he's retired yet. He, and now according to uh, Kevin Doma, I don't think he'll mind if I, I mention him, that he and Nantes may be coming to an agreement to play for another season. I think it's uh, between Kira Lazarov and Eduardo Gerbindo as to which one of those two right backs stay. So maybe if Lazarov does get to stay with Nantes, he will play for another season and Ergo will be playing and coaching with, uh, with Macedonia. I love it. I love it. Because I can imagine Kira Lazarov pretty much subbing himself on for another four years. Give himself at least five minutes a game to just bolster those top scorer records. <laughs> <laughs> or still take penalties. He'll definitely take penalties. Take off his tie on the bench and... Uh, I, why not? I mean, definitely for penalties. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, just continue that gap at the top of the all-time top scorer ranking in the uh, the World Championship. He promises that he's going to reshape the Macedonian handball. He's going to um, focus on on the team playing both ways, attack and defense, playing fast, modern handball, and also restructuring things at the very bottom. So in youth national teams as well, so that everyone is playing a certain way and moving up. We talked a little bit about this Macedonian team during the World Championship podcast about their, I guess, the the complete lack of experience on one end of the squad and then the over-reliance on the old guys on the other. Uh, We'll see if Kirill has the... Uh, has the balls to say to his old pals sorry you're not in the squad anymore that for me is a very interesting aspect to it yeah I mean you do wonder will they have the I mean the talent it is something we brought up a a few times before but I I read that interview also what were you saying he wants to he promises fast modern handball words which I never would have associated with seeing the Macedonian national team going to be interesting to see how much of a role he plays I mean he said he'll confirm within the next few months if he will do it as a player coach or if he will just do it as, as a coach. So I think it's open at the moment. But I mean, you'd love those moments, though, that he was just coaching the, the team the whole tournament long. And then the last few minutes, puts on, puts on the kit, comes on. You know, we'd love to see that. That's the stuff that movies are made from. Yeah, I, I think the big test is going to be... So we're talking about fast modern handball. Stoilov is <laughs> not fast modern handball. And Stoilov has been 
I presume, very good friends with Lazarov for a long time. And he's still a great player. And straight away, there is a decision for Kirill Lazarov to basically prove what he's about, to walk the walk and, yeah, decide whether he wants to move on from Stoilov or how he treats that. So I, I think there's a decision there straight away, which will show us exactly what Lazarov is made of as a coach I don't know I think I think of all the positions on the court though I think that's probably the most forgiving in terms of you can play a half, you can have a, a fast fast modern handball team but you could have a line player like Stoilov still fit into that team though no you may have him as a small role but it comes down to this so like the French team where uh, Didier Denard and Guillaume Gilles have kept around their mates who they played with for many years equals at an earlier stage within a squad and have to coach them and it brings a a very difficult dynamic so I think if Lazarov is serious about really changing everything I'm not saying anything bad about Stoilov I I love him he is one of my favorite players of all time but if the first thing that Lazarov says is I want to play fast I want to play two-way handball and I want to bring a new age to Macedonia I just don't think Stoilov fits within that. But it's also such a difficult decision to make. Yeah, I think he's too good to leave out. I think he's one of the one of the few stars they have, so I, I, I can't see him not featuring, do you know? But is he still a star? <laughs> <laughs> or are you are you falling into thinking of the Stoilov of uh, five years ago? The bear who's a ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lazarov is going to be able to test his fast modern handball against the, the kings of fast modern handball when they play Denmark in qualifiers in March. So we'll see what happens there. What a hell of a way to start your coaching career. <laughs> a double header against Denmark. That's <laughs> um, Yeah, fascinating stuff. Uh, and thanks to Philip Bischoff uh, for sharing the tweets uh, and uh, translating to English from Lazarov. Maybe we'll get him on to to talk about his views on it and, and whether Kirill has indeed turned the team into a modern handball team uh, later on in the year. In the Delo EHF Champions League, the playoffs are now set and similar to the men's competition, all 16 teams are through. We'll run through them quickly. It's Budućnost against FTC. They'll play the winner of Biedekheim and Dürer in the quarterfinals. We have Vipers against Odense, a nice little Scandinavian derby. They'll play the winners of Podravka and Rostov in the quarterfinals. We have Valtia and CSM. So uh, all Romanian last 16 tie, which is pretty cool. One of those teams going through to the quarterfinal to play the winners of Krim and CSKA. Then we have Esbjerg against Brest and Borussia Dortmund against Mets. So we could have two French teams facing off in the quarterfinals for a spot in the final four in Budapest. What are your thoughts on that, Brian? I think probably CSK are going to be absolutely licking their lips looking at that side of their playoff to quarterfinals because I think they'd probably fancy themselves to beat everyone on the in their little uh, four-team bracket there. Um, probably the hardest game to call would probably, for me, would probably Budućnost versus FTC. I think it's really, I mean, FTC finished really, really strong there, but Budućnost are at, like, I mean, look, you know what I'm going to say about FTC, but if you're going to get into an absolute scrap with someone, I don't think you want to get into a scrap with Budućnost. Um, so that's probably, for me, the hardest game to call. I, I think the hardest bracket to call is the one that starts with Vipers versus Odense. Re- really equal game there in the uh, last 16 round. 
And the winner of that plays Rostov Don, who have been... Well, sorry. Sorry. The winner of that plays the winner of uh, Podravka <laughs> Vegeta versus Rostov Don. <laughs> so they will play Rostov Don <laughs> for a place in the final four. That's, um, a, that's, a, that's a hot take, Alex. <laughs> easy there. We've, we've that history with Croatia. You need to take it easy. <laughs> This Podravka team doesn't have enough of their uh, Croatian national team from the Euros, so that's why I can't write them off. But yeah, that's very interesting. And it will be... uh, Timing is a big uh, focus for Vipers because they lost Nuremberg for a period of time. Thankfully, Mm -hmm. um, it was confirmed that the injury she suffered was no... um, There was no significant damage to her knee, which was a big relief because I was watching that game and seeing Nurmark in tears on the bench from a non-contact injury was it was genuinely heartbreaking i i was just really sad that whole evening <laughs> i couldn't believe it um oh. but thankfully the news came through that it's not a serious injury but be interesting to see yeah just how serious it is is it a couple of months or is it a couple of weeks and that could be the deciding factor of viper season uh which started off with such high hopes but with the cancelled games and the lost points, they end up with a tough opponent in Odense. And with the Normark injury on top of that, it, it, it's a real tough hill to climb. Does it feel like to you guys that it, there's never been a season where it's been more obvious who's going to take the trophy? Because it's really hard to find, apart, I think probably apart from maybe Brest, it's really genuinely hard to find a team that you really could think could challenge i know we're getting ahead of, ahead of ourselves here a little bit when you're talking about the playoffs but i'm just looking at all these teams here it's very difficult to imagine anyone who could really give gear a push is there someone in there i'm i'm saying probably only breast but then breast could maybe then also lose to to, to esberg so they're kind of a, a little of a mixed bag what do you think Jur are just like they're mind fucking everyone at the moment this season like if it's if they're not hammering teams they're like getting into really difficult situations and just dragging themselves out of it i mean four draws this season three of them were three away games where they were losing by three four or five goals with just somewhere between seven and eight minutes left and in all these situations drag themselves back for a draw they're looking so good i mean they are and they are an all-star team of the two best teams at the Euro last year, the finalists, France and Norway, they've got about four or five players from each team just put together. And, you know, it just looks so, so intimidating. You never know. I mean, I, I thought CSK would uh, give them a bit of a push uh, last week, like they did uh, in the game in Russia. I think they, the two Russian teams, Rostov, are, are looking a bit better uh, as the season goes on as well so they might have a chance if they get through because you know it could very well be vipers beating them in that quarterfinal yeah the french teams it's it's hard to say yeah i think it will be an all french battle in that quarterfinal so maybe one of them i i think anything can happen at the final four uh, always as as time has told year in year out in the last few years it has been dure to dominate uh, but in those drawn games, even though they've always come back, they've shown a bit of fragility. So maybe there is an option there for a team. There's two draws this season against Brest. So I was about to say that over two legs, I don't see a team beating Sure, And mm. um, in a final four, I think 
the Russian teams and the French teams can put it up against them and make them uncomfortable. Over the last three years, if 33 wins and eight draws. So it just kind of shows you how consistent they've been. But it's, it's, when you're talking about it there, Chris, it, it's almost like reminiscent of uh, Man United in the 90s with the squeaky bum time, always finding a way to win. And that's that kind of, it's not really kind of the greatest teams that they kind of can really cope with that pressure and they just know what they have and they just have this incredible incredible squad that's what I, the reason I think of Brest is I just think of Sandra Toft look I think if you're going to beat Gure you're going to have to have the best keeper in the world playing the best game of her life and then yeah, I think you have a chance you know but a very very tough tough nut to crack and Anna Gross and Anna Gross yeah of course some interesting playoff games there not all of them of course some of them should be walkovers but overall the, the route to Budapest should be a fun one and that continues in three weeks time I think it's time to go into our interview with Julian Rux and Oliver Brozik from Handballytics. Thank you to Oliver Brozik and Julian Rux, who are joining us today from the Handballytics website. And the two of them have pioneered some advanced analytics within handball. And personally, I believe it's an area that hasn't been explored enough. It's probably been quite difficult to explore in the past with handball, but I think there's a lot of potential with it. So maybe as an opening question, what what inspired you to bring advanced analytics into handball? Yeah, <laughs> well, there are two passions. Um, this is one passion is handball from my side, and the other passion is uh, statistics. I went to the university here in Dortmund and uh, made my diploma in statistics. So this is my, my business part from one hand. And on the other hand, I pl- played handball for almost 30 years. And so there was the opportunity to bring these both things together. And um, as you said, there was not much data in the past. When I went to university, there was no data at all. And this developed over the last couple of years. And my, my personal experience for my, my job side went higher and higher. And yeah, so um, I had the opportunity to bring all, everything together at this point or well, some years ago. Even. Yeah, for me, it's a bit a bit different maybe. Uh, unlike Oli, I'm not like a, a professional st- statistician. I studied business administration and, and through that, obviously, I had some, some statistic courses. But uh, yeah, stats have always been like, I was always very interested in it. I'm not a numbers person. And I followed like advanced stats, uh, in, especially in basketball, for for a long time. And handball also has been has always been a big interest of mine. And so I always thought, why is this such a big part in basketball? And and it has become so important over the last 10, 15 years. But but in handball, it really doesn't play uh, much of a role. And even though this, the two sports, especially, are so similar. I thought, well, if, if no one else uh, does it or barely anyone does it, well, I guess I have to start it uh, on my own. And did you ever come up with an answer to that question about why handball isn't, isn't like basketball and why it's kind of behind in that regard? Um, well, obviously, a big role is money. Uh, I would say in, in, if, if you compare like the budget of the of, of NBA teams and, and of the big, big handball teams, extremely big, uh, big difference where like the value of the, the biggest basketball teams is like uh, three, 
three uh, billion dollars. And obviously, uh, that's pretty much like all handball teams together. Also, I think that the difference between the United States and Europe is that also in, in the United States, there's always a lot of sports there is always have played a bigger role there than they do like in, in the traditional uh, Europe, uh, European sports. And I think these are the and uh, these are the biggest differences. Also, in handball right now, there's not there are data that uh, you can work with, uh, not available in handball. Where in, in basketball, uh, there's pretty much every every little detail is tracked. Handball is starting to grow in that, but it's I would say it's it's pretty much if you compare it 20 years behind basketball. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, aspect that it has taken so long for anything like this to pop up and uh, i know we're very thankful particularly alex very thankful for what the effort you guys have put in particularly in the recent months to uh, bring it to the world championship in january now i know both you oliver and julian are responsible for different things different aspects different metrics that you've come up with maybe you can tell us about these metrics that you've developed and give us a, a bit of an insight into them maybe oliver first yeah, you're talking about the player score I invented. Yeah, I invented it together with uh, Jörn Ormeister, uh, who is responsible for the handball education at the University of Bochum, here in the Ruhrgebiet. And um, he was my coach in my my prime, I would say, uh, here in, in, in Germany. And he's at the same um, team as, as, I, as uh, he was before right now and um, so we never lost contact over the years and as he went to the university one time he asked oh oliver you did some statistics stuff and yeah the, the students are asking me statistics things and i'm i don't know the answer can you take a look here and yeah i took a look and we chatted and uh, so i said perhaps i have something interesting for you i developed some some measurements some cluster analysis to measure how similar players are. For example, if, if some left wing leaves the club like Gensheimer did some years ago for the Heinecker Löwen, is there any player who's, who's very similar to him according to stats from uh, European Cups or um, uh, World Cups? And I started this one and showed this to him. And he said, oh, I said, you, you don't have to, we have to use it. We have to use it. And I will ask the guys here and I will send emails and so on. And he started and there was some interest, but this was too complicated and too deep into everything. And so I said, said okay, after around about one year, yeah, I have one little thing. What about this player score? What about to evaluate, to have a metric to um, explain how good player really was so I, because I, I, I said okay this all-star teams are shit and uh, well, I hope I can say that yeah, uh, and I, I don't like them yeah. <laughs> in most cases and I don't understand it and sometimes okay this the, the player on the in the left back always gets his credits for the for their goals and no credits for the center backs and so on and so I thought about yeah okay what's what about counting every positive and every negative um, actions we have in the game and bring them together and to make it not such easy to just weight them with the, the time played and the goal difference we, we have. And that's basically the player score. And yeah, we published it and used it on these big tournaments. And um, yeah, we had really good feedback and also some, some teams in the Bundesliga or even the second Bundesliga 
they said, okay, that's, that's great. Um, we, can, we can see something here. And yeah, so this, everything went its way. And um, yeah, finally, I uh, met Julian on Twitter. And so he, he had his uh, page analytics. And so I'm writing as a guest. And we can bring all both worlds, as you said, together. Yeah, just just on the player score before we move on, I, I really yeah I really like it as a stat. And when we look at when we pick our all star teams, so not the you know not the official tournament all star team, but uh, when we give our opinion, we kind of from watching every game we figure out and pick our best players, and the player score really matches that up very closely most of the time. And I think there's something unique about it compared to a lot of stats in other let's say other sports even and that is this time and score element just how important an action is at the specific time so uh i don't really have a question i just think that <laughs> well, I, 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 I have a i have a question based on that so i i'm, I'm aware from um what you spoke about alex uh, to alex about in the past that so based on a certain time in the game the actions, whether positive or negative, have more weight. So say you, you score a goal or you throw the ball away in the 59th minute, it is increasingly important. Is also the score at that time weighed in? Because obviously in the 59th minute, if you're winning by 20 goals, it doesn't matter if you throw the ball away. If it's a draw in the 59th minute and you throw the ball away, it's a, a bigger disaster. Uh, yeah, 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 of course. I can give you an example. For, I just have it here. The, the highest player score points for one one action is uh, 3.5 points. 1.5 for the minute and 2 for the goal difference, which is very close. So you have a goal difference of 0 or 1 minus 1, then there's weight for the goal differences every time it's 2. And so then there's some, 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 yeah, some bill-shaped form when it's, it's getting lower and lower. And if after yeah, if there's a goal difference of 16, some kind of it's just almost zero. And so you have you have a 60 minutes goal at a goal difference of 16. There's an, there's 1.6 points for for this goal afterwards. So there's a difference of almost two points from player score point point for this action in the last minute. And um as, as you imagine, there's the goal difference is very narrow at the start of a game and can only in, um, increase over the over the time of the game. In the first minutes, there's always a big influence of the, the goal difference and not so much of the minute. So the goal in the first minute is always 2.5 points. So this is that's not scientifically evaluated very deeply, but it's just, as you said, uh, I came up with this idea, I tested around something a little bit, and then came to this result as it seems to work. And this is why, why we are talking and why we are happy with that. Mm-hmm. It's just some kind of, of feeling that it fits together. And there are critics, a lot of critics about this time. Every goal is equally, equally important. There are some experts here in Germany, for example. <laughs> yeah, but but as long as it works and if we're all happy, it, and um, so it's fine for for us. Uh, while while Oli is uh, looking at at single players, the things that I've done until now are more looking on on a team level. Things um, I'm looking at mostly, and it's also adopted from from basketball. The the, the basic idea 
uh, efficiency of the offense or of the de of the defense or so-called of offensive or defensive ratings, which, which is just a simple concept of goals or goals conceded per 50 possessions. 50 possessions is, is roughly what uh, a game uh, on the average has, but they are different. So, for example, if you look at the, um, the Bundesliga, there are... Um, Uh, Eulen and Ludwigshafen, which play a very slow pace and, and often take fouls in defense. They just have like 40 something, like 45 uh, possessions per game. And on the other side, there is teams like Magdeburg or Coburg is number one right now with about 55 uh, possessions per game. So there's a difference. Um, so obviously, uh, Coburg scores more than, than Ludwigshafen. Because they have, I think, the difference is something like seven possessions per game. So obviously they score more because they have more possessions. But that doesn't mean uh, that they have a better offense because it depends on how good you use your possessions. And that's why I uh, took this because I really, really like this, this idea. Um, I took this from, from basketball and adopted it in, in, in handball and it uh, equals out the style of play, like if you play at fast pace or slow pace. And one, one of the things I've seen uh, you discuss on Twitter has been this other concept of expected goals, which is big in football. And um, there's kind of other uh, people in the humble world who have tried to bring that forward. But your argument is that the expected goals model doesn't quite fit Humble, but it, um, the offensive rating is a better metric. Can you give us a bit of insight on that? Sure. So uh, expected goals is just to, to explain it simply, is it just takes uh, in soccer or football, just take the, the possession or like also the type of, of play. Um, sometimes there are different models. And then you take a shot and then you give it a value like how the percentage that the shot usually or on average goes in. So, for example, the closer you're, you're to, the, to the goal, the higher is the expected goal. And there are differences, obviously, if you take a header or shoot with your strong foot or your weak foot and so on. And where the goalkeepers, there are different models. The biggest difference um, in, from handball to, to football, the handball, both teams have like equally the same number of, of shots. And in football, this can uh, differ, differ uh, very much. And also the, the quality of the shots differs very much. So in football, this, this metric is so important because it, it's like a, a better way to instead just the simple shots on goal um, to, to measure how, how good an offense is. Because obviously if you shoot in football from like 20 meters behind the box 20 times, um, then you have 20 shots on the goal. But in expected goals, it would be zero point anything because you usually don't score from there. But in handball, positions from where you shoot, uh, the, the difference of the percentage is not, not that high. Uh, obviously, it's the closer you get to, uh, to the goal, the percentage you, you uh, make shots is higher. But it's not that big uh, as it's in, in football. And also, there are, there are other uh, problems like offensive rebounds or second uh, chance shots. Because if you just take the, the same basic approach as in, in football, If you shoot from or from the from line player position where where the high, where you have the highest percentage, uh, it's maybe I don't know the it's maybe like 58% or something, and but if you miss and then you shoot again from there and then you make the goal. So 
for this one possession, you would have 1.8 or 1.8 um, expected goals, which obviously is a figure that's impossible because you can't score more than one goal in a, in a possession. So, so taking this just simply to handball doesn't really make sense. And I've, I've tried to do it. I've written um, an article where I did it uh, just in the way that it's done in, in football, but it doesn't really make sense. But I think that there are um, ways that could be used. Yeah, but, but it has to be like adapted to handball and, and some things have to be tweaked, which I haven't done yet. I have a question for, for Oliver, actually, about the positive and negative actions. Are there ever gray areas where you're watching a game and you're thinking, like, for example, if there's a team going on a fast break and one of the players has the ball and doesn't see someone going on a fast break, doesn't do anything, okay, didn't see the player on the fast break, missed that opportunity, but they keep the ball, keep the possession, and they move up the court to take, a, to take their, their set-up uh, attack, or a player not seeing a pass to the wing and the wing is open or something like that. What, what do you do in situations like that? The data you saw is just from the play-by-play -play, uh, provided from the tournaments no? by uh, IHF and EHF. And so they decide what, what I can measure. This is just small points. It's just the I think blocks. Um, it's uh, the goals scored. It's uh, technical faults. And so on. So there's not no difference in these situations right now for these big tournaments. As I just collect the data. I, I don't I don't collect any data by myself. I just put it from the PDF files that the, they they provide us. But there are there are we are working together um, with um, a coach in the the German Bundesliga, and they they take a look on their video sessions on the the games afterwards by themselves, and they decide what they want to have in there so that they they create some unique own actions they want to have into this player score so we can adapt the player score for everybody who's was interested in and uh, calculate their own things for example stop fouls in the defense which are very important for the coach as you can you can interrupt the game this is not provided by the by in, in the big tournaments because the guys who are girls who sits there, they're just not the position to decide what's what's good or what's bad they are. But the coach can do that. And so this coach um, makes that the list of the actions is, is longer and they are some, some kind of weighted. And so he gets an own score for his games and just for his team. So this is this is important to, to measure. But you can, can do everything, but you have to do it repeatedly over, over a season, over some games. And then you can come to, to compare something, and you're not you're not able to compare international games like on these tournaments if there are different measures or different guys who who sits there and types in what what happened. And I think that what uh, Oli just mentioned is probably the the biggest problem that we have. Uh, what we're doing is that well, we have to rely on obviously other people collecting uh, the stats because we don't do it ourselves. We get the, the, the stats from the uh, Bundesliga or from the play-by-play -play from, from the international competitions. Also, they have their, the stats that they collect. And obviously, I would love to have other stats such as number of, of uh, stop fouls or like the current formation of the defense or, or whatever to evaluate that. But um, it's not possible. And obviously, we could, um, and I've, I've tried to do that sometimes to collect our own uh, data. 
but it's just uh, to to like get a sample size that's big enough. It's just so much work. But it, it seems like the Bundesliga is probably the the first league that is starting to look into data. The data sources are getting a little bit better. You are a guest blogger on the Bundesliga website, which means uh, this kind of information is going to the masses. And then, Ali, you mentioned that you know that you've been working with some clubs, but is it at a currently at quite a high level, or is there a real use for it in handball to really change the way that we view and play handball? Something like the transformation we've seen in the NBA, where teams have really delved into it and have changed the way they play. Do you think there's potential of getting deep into statistics in handball and really changing the way handball is played? Yeah, from my point of view, there are ways and I'm, there are some different points that are coming together. One point is, okay, we, we just have to start. As Julian and I did, we have, there are some metrics you can, can take a look at and say they are useful. And so the coaches and the, the, the Bundesliga themselves, and they think, okay, we can use it to make us better. And so they get an understanding. And then they say, okay, we need more data. And so it's just to start the process. I see that this process is getting started. We talk about coaches and we talked to about the HBL themselves. We, uh, Julian and I have contact to the, it's called the digital, head of digital development, or we were getting the data from them. They invited the, the Headball Performance Index. Um, I was invited to this first meeting there and, and could give my input. So they have a focus on it and they provide it to their teams. This is one thing. And the other thing, I hope, this tracking data from Kinexon this is available in the Bundesliga. We all, I think Julian and I had big hopes and, and, and some really some other guys in this data. But unfortunately, they... they yeah, don't give them out to us. Just some top five of the fastest player, whatever you can see on, on the internet. I think in the combination, you collect more data as we both use and bring it together with the Kinexon tracking data. Then you have some some market. And and I'm, I know from some, some small companies, even there, they are familiar with, with this tracking data in, in football. They are they starting to contact the, the teams and the, the, the Bundesliga, the HBL organization and uh, trying to bring this together i had just some talks with them and um, to share my experience there are thoughts to make that but at one point covid 19 is, is really worse for all of us but it's some kind of the starting point for, for julian to, to have the time for me to have more time unfortunately uh, uh, no evening uh, events and to to start this and the coach I had contact to said, okay, I just had the time because of COVID-19 to take a look on my on my team so and, and, and everything around. So they said, okay, and then I contacted you. And on the other hand, there's even less money available for all of the teams in this time. So you have to invest some money to bring this up. And so this is, this is really hard. They recognize this great thing of data analytics in, in handball, but there's not that money to make it that big as we know it in from, from the US sport. I think we have to wait mm. some, some years. Yeah, I completely agree with uh, everything Oli said, but I have a few things to add. So player tracking that, that's currently done in the uh, Bundesliga. I think the teams uh, said on a, on a gold mine, they just either 
just barely use it or don't you even use it at all? There could be statistically so many great things and, and uh, great insights done with that data that's available. Things like stats of, of certain lineups and uh, yeah, so much, so many things that could be easily uh, done with, with that data. And to go back to your um, initial question, I think where you uh, said that like how, how stats have changed basketball, Uh, for example, and if that's possible in handball too, I think that on a on a smaller level we already see that. For example, the, the, if you look at the shooting positions, the least um, uh, the lowest percentage of the user usual shots is ob obviously from the backcourt, because there's usually uh, defense between the goal and the shooter, and obviously it's it's further away from the goal, and you see. Similar development like in basketball where the mid-range shot, because it's the least valuable shot, has disappeared pretty much. You see the, the number of backward shots going down. This happened in the Bundesliga in the uh, last years a little bit. And especially if you look at international handball in the last 20 years, where the, the percentage has go, gone down from uh, like by 10, 10 percentage points or 20 percentage points, which is really a big number. So there, there's, there have been way more shots from the, from the backcourt uh, 20 years ago than there are right now. And it's somewhat first step or first thing where, where, where stats matter because people see and see that Some shots are high, more valuable than others, so let's try to get these shots. Let's try to get to the close to the goal. Let's try to get one-on-one, uh, one-on-one or isolation plays, where we then get uh, can kick it out to the wing and get uh, good shots from there. I like to compare that to the, to the um, development that has happened in basketball, where the mid-range shot has disappeared. And there are also coaches that on, on these ideas, like Bennett Wiegert does in, in Magdeburg, have based their, their style of play on to, to get more of these higher valuable uh, shots more often instead of just simple backcourt shots. One area that uh, on this podcast over the years, particularly Alex likes to make fun of, and that is uh, the transfer policies of certain teams, uh, not to mention any in particular right now, but where... Clubs, particularly around Europe, probably in the Bundesliga as well, tend to recruit players and sign players just because they know who they are, even if they're five years older than they were when they when they were the player that they knew. Signing players based on reputation alone or based on what they believe they can do rather than any kind of statistical background on it. Now, Alex said if it was up to him to build a club, he would do the stats on, on young Danish players and just uh, recruit 20 of them from Gyogi probably. But um, I think uh, I, that, that for me feels like an obvious area that teams uh, and, and the wider handball world could go into. Obviously, that means having more teams and having the European competitions adopt this kind of player score and these kind of analytics. But I guess that's an area that you feel that... Uh, teams should be interested in as well yeah yeah uh, we, we we had talks uh, i think two years ago with uh, some german bundesliga Liga team and they asked if we can calculate the player score for the CH league in in the balkan region mm -hmm. and so they they said okay we don't have we're not the big club here and so we can't buy any player from denmark or even france or whatever so we have to look down there 
And we said, okay, you give us the data. Is, is there any, any data available? So we can calculate it. Okay, some yeah. small count amount of money perhaps, but okay, okay, we understand it's it's hard. And But we, on a regular basis, we have con contact to them. And after every big tournament, they ask for the player scores or they ask for the, this cluster analysis I did in the past. And, and they they really interested to to just, as you, you, they took a look at the game and just want to, to be sure if that's what they see, it's some kind of close to to this what we measure player score. So they are the first small steps, uh, even in, in the Bundesliga, to use this data. But yeah, you you, you have good ideas, perhaps. <laughs> can you can you tell us who they are? The the team. Yeah, it's uh, Minden. Ah. G G W D yes. Minden uh, asked asked for this and mm -hmm. and I, I also can tell that that Andre Haber of of Leipzig is is uh, the coach that's really interested in the player score. He uh, uses his data to uh, yeah make the make the um, um, the players of his team better and just uh, have some some yeah it's even if you talk to to your players you said you you did it yeah this job was not so good you. I would like to have five stop fouls here or whatever, and like he measures it and can 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 show it on on some reporting on the screen. And so he told us this, this really helps to 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 motivate the players and and make them better players. That's interesting because I would say that uh, Minden and Leipzig are both teams who probably perform a little better than they should. One thing that I have noticed is that the Champions Leagues has posted some better post-match stats sheets with a bit more detail a bit more play-by-play -play. i've just noticed that they started tracking assists for example which i love assists so my question is can you do this analysis on uh, champions league games now or have you seen the updated statistics sheets no i, I didn't took a look at this right now but perhaps yeah, i should as you as you said and uh, i will uh, I, I'm, I'm normally one, one or two times at the start of the season. I just take a look at all the leagues, take a look at if, if there's anything new, anything more that's that's tracked. And if they didn't start it at the, the start of the season, I just missed it. <laughs> I actually uh, took a look at Champions League just a, a couple of days ago, and I could really do my stuff with that play-by-play -play data that's available there. The big problem is that I would have like. Currently, I would have copy and paste like everything on my side because I try to scrape it with with uh, R the side, but it doesn't work like the way I did it for other things. Actually, I, I tried to contact them, but uh, didn't to just give me the raw data like the, the Bundesliga does, but uh, they didn't answer me. So, well, um, yeah, but but the Champions League is pretty much the the next uh, thing that I would like to cover. All right, then Cr Chris and Brian get on to EHF, <laughs> tell them to send over some data. I th I believe it's uh, SportRadar who do the tracking or are responsible for the tracking for uh, for the Champions League. So Same as the Bundesliga, so it would yeah. be... Jörn from the University of Bochum and, and I just met the guys uh, in, in Vienna 2018. I think we were invited to present the player score there. We had talks to, to put it into their system and, and so on, but this is... Really complicated as as the data the data owners somebody different and, and and so on so yeah this is, this doesn't work out for us and uh, so um, they were interested some years ago and and they are 
always interested on, on the big tournaments and so on. They they are listening to to us and they sometimes we send emails with the player score to them before the end of the tournament, like we did this year. They are interested and yeah, hopefully there will be will be more. This is a question to both of you now. Do you feel like you're both kind of slowly trying to change the handball culture in a, in a, in a respect towards statistics? Because Julian said it at the beginning as well that often people, often fans will use statistics more um, when they're talking to each other from um, and when they're talking about American sports or whatever in comparison to European sports. Do you feel like you're doing that or, or do you feel like you're witnessing that maybe a little bit of a change slowly? It's pretty much the idea that I had when I when I started all this because I wanted to get this more into handball and to make handball more, let's say, intelligent uh, in, in this way, find ways where where uh, can be more efficient and maybe start to change it and obviously i think that guys like you post uh, about the player score or other things that we do uh, are first step on, on changing things on uh, getting the idea more out we are on the way yeah rasmus boysen always likes the stuff we did mm-hmm. and so he's just some kind of pushes it into the the handball world and yeah the, the bundesliga i was invited to 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 talk about my, my Player score experience for their handball performance index, which which is used in, in the Bundesliga. So I think yeah, we can do something. But as for both of us, it's just this is our hobby. We are doing our regular job, and so it's yeah, we have a nine nine to five job, and then we do it um, for fun and, and and extra. So so it's it's yeah, I, I have enough ideas to do it twenty four hours a day, <laughs> and uh, so I would love to do it. But uh, yeah, right at the moment, nobody can pay me the money I would uh, like to have or I have to have. Um, mm. And so, um, yeah, hopefully even this is 30 years. Hopefully we both are some kind of the pioneers of, of handball statistics. This is why I'm, I'm really open to, to everybody who's interested. I had some, some guy from a French university who asked some questions or... Uh, Arthur from from Poland who just did some um, expected goal stuff, uh, some contact, and I give all all my information out to the world and just hope that is there's anybody who who's interested in it and brings it further into handball, and so I can say, okay, I was just some pioneer and role model for for others. So in in thirty years' time, will we still have the passes completed? That or will that be gone by then? <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, we will see. There's no doubt that um, that the two of you are pioneers in this regard, and I'm sure that as, as time goes on and more people become aware of it, and it's you've got more data to to back up what you're doing, that the money will start flowing in anytime now. Like almost certainly worth the money, I'd say, for these teams, particularly in the long run, because you know, relative to the wages of players, you know, what's what's one less player when you can uh, effectively use what you have? Yeah. I think, yeah, but but you have the problem in, in the Bundesliga. Sometimes the the, the coaches just there. There's just one coach, and no no assistant or just one assistant. And if you took took a look at or take a look at other sports, there are just three, four, five assistants just for the, for the game. And mm-hmm. I, I think they will invest in this if if they have the money. They invest, will more invest in this area and not to our data analytics. I'm not sure, but um, I think you, you have to bring more stuff into into this handball organizations. Um, and this is one one thing should be in data analyst, of course. <laughs> but um, 
yeah, I think in many teams there's just small budget for all the, the, yeah. the, the stuff next to the team and not the team himself. Guys, there was a super interesting conversation. Really glad that the, the two of you could take some time to chat with us. Um, I really enjoyed what you guys did in, in January and we're looking forward to seeing more of it, hopefully, as the, the months and years go on. So Oliver and Julian, thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. It was a was a, was an honor to talk to you. As uh, yeah, I try to listen to almost all, all of your podcasts and just read everything on Twitter you you write and your experience. And it's always a, yeah great fun to 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 hear what you're saying and then yeah, your insights on the sports. Yeah. Thanks for that from a, from a listener. Perfect, guys. Thanks a lot. Really pleasure. Thanks a lot to Julian and Oliver for that really insightful chat. But there is one thing that we didn't get into, and it's a stat that I'm, I've been trying to bring to handball, but not sure how. And that is the double-double or the triple-double in basketball, where there is a combination of stats. Usually it's 10 points, 10 rebounds, and 10 assists, which create this mythical game which people really value if, if someone can make or create a double-double, it's hugely valued. And there's no such thing in handball. And the ambition of 10 goals, 10 assists is probably a little bit, it is ambitious, even though Dan Bombance once did get 10 goals, 9 assists in a game. But I'm going to propose that it should be 5 goals, 5 assists, should be the metric for judging a top performance of a player in a game. I want to call it either a quint or a quintuple, but that just doesn't sound sexy. You guys have any ideas? Well, <laughs> you did say sexy. Maybe we can up it to six and six, and it's a sexy six. That's that's a bit You're... too sexy, Chris. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I actually like, but I like, I do like six and six though. And looking just from um, a game played over the weekend, uh, Vardar against Seged, which I think was a, a very good game. There was one of the performances, Lovro Jotic from Vardar. He got six goals and six assists, so he would qualify. No, shit, he got f six goals and five assists. Wouldn't make a sexy six, but uh, he would get the quintuple. Quintuple double? A quin double? <laughs> but do, do you think five and five, five goals, five assists is, is sufficient for a double double? Yeah, I've, I've tried to kind of compare it to basketball as well in terms of yeah, how much percentage of a team's points are you contributing to. So if five goals, five assists in handball, you're uh, contributing to between 50, uh, 30 and 50% of your team's goals, whether, you know, 20 to 30 goals in a game. So that's, I think that's a pretty impressive performance for one, one player to really drive a team i've got one more question on this a quin treble right so three times five and i'm guessing it would have to be blocks or steals which player off the top of your head do you think is most suited to get five goals five assists and five blocks or steals blagians playing uh, at right back that's exactly what i thought as well <laughs> But I was thinking Blas Jans playing on the wing and and on the back, maybe because he, well, he is, he's likely to steal anywhere in defense, regardless of where he's playing. So yeah, Blas Jans at right back. Very good. 
Correct. There is still a big caveat because I'm very happy that the Champions League has now brought in a few more extra stats so you can track assists, steals, blocks. But there's still a bit of an inconsistency in how assists are tracked. And an example of that was the uh, game between Meshkov Brest and Kielsa, where if you look at the match sheet, every single goal in that game had an assist beside it. Almost every goal had an assist beside it. Where traditionally in handball, in the European and World Championships, assists are reserved for a pass to the line or to the wing. It's kind of, you know, passing. But I, I think there's a somewhere in between there where if you p- pass a ball and someone breaks through and scores, that should be an assist, which usually isn't counted. But if you pass and someone shoots from 10 meters, uh, I don't think you can really credit yourself too much. So do you think the big problem is that handball fans don't cherish assists as much maybe as they do in basketball? But they should. It's, it's, I think it's because the data was never there or people aren't looking at it. Because I think in handball, assists are even more valuable than basketball because so much about handball is about really getting defend, drawing defenders in and passing to the open man. So there really is a huge value in a center player kind of running through, taking defenses in and then passing it off to a gap. And there's also the beautiful assists of, you know, the Mikkel Hansen pass to the wing or kind of wrap around to the line. But I think the the assists where you're ma- you're making the gap, you're allowing a player to just run through and score without any defense is really not valued and humble enough and you said it's not cherished but that i guess like that ties into the whole conversation we have with the two guys that you know it's it's an area that they're trying to to bring into handball culture and, and slowly but surely um it's going in the right direction so all hail the assists white guys love assists you sure do anyway okay on that note <laughs> shall we wrap it up for today any other final thoughts another, another thing we've talked about for a while now as well is the old one two and i think uh you should get a, a, an award after every game. So look, what the old one too is when you score a goal and the player who you're going one against one against or whatever happened, they get two minutes. So I think you should get like, I don't know, a rubber medal or something after every time, after every game, someone comes up, you get an award for that and or some sort of ceremony, a, a golden t-shirt or some golden socks or something every time you do the old one too. I, I did mention it in commentary last week. Good uh, man. The old one too. Never, never, lets, never let an opportunity slip uh, for that. Final thought is that I want to give Fuchs of Berlin a shout out. I, with my heart, I predicted them to do well this season and I really didn't believe that they would. But currently they're sitting in second place in the Bundesliga on a pretty good uh, win streak and are looking like a really good team. So I'm sure we can uh, talk about them in a little bit more detail in the future. Yeah, good stuff. I'm sure we will. That's been the Uninformed Handball Hour for this week. Back with you again very soon. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Mm